Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to his followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as he marks out the way of discipleship for us. We're in chapter 13, which is roughly halfway through John's gospel. There's 21 chapters in John's gospel. Um, we're in chapter 13, right around halfway through it. Um, however, the last half of John's gospel nearly focuses on just the last few days of Jesus. So the first 12 chapters covers quite a bit of time. Uh, most people think three years. Uh, the first 12 chapters are three years. Well, the last, chapters 13 through 21, is just like a few days. And so John is really zeroing in. He's really spending a lot of time on these last few days of Jesus I think implicitly we can know because these are such important days in the life of Jesus. These are the last few days, the last few hours before he's arrested, condemned, crucified, and buried. And what we see him doing in these last days before this happens is he's spending time with a smaller group. He's spending time with the 12 disciples. Of course, he spent time with them throughout the first 12 chapters, throughout most of his ministry. He spent a lot of time with them, but he also spent a lot of time with the crowds, spent a lot of time with the multitudes. But now here at the very end, uh, we're in a very intimate scene, and we're going to see Jesus do something very intimate, in fact, uh, in our text today. Uh, but Jesus is really focused on his disciples here before he leaves. So I'm going to talk more about the context in a moment, but I want to read for us our verses. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe their feet with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, then not my feet only, but my hands, my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For Jesus knew who was to betray him. That was why he had said, Not all of you are clean. When Jesus had washed their feet and put 
his outer garment and resumed his place, Jesus said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Every morning, I am the first person to wake up in my house, and being the introverted private time junkie that I am, my entire goal is to keep my five other family members asleep for as long as possible. So what this requires is navigating my house with minimal sound and minimal light. So as soon as I wake up, I get into James Bond espionage mode. I even have the Mission Impossible theme music playing in my head, you know, dun, 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 dun. I know exactly, for instance... I know exactly how to roll out of my bed so as to make it creak as few times as possible. I then touch down my feet on the ground in the exact spot so that it doesn't reverberate throughout my house. And then I begin to walk. This is an important part. Each step is precisely calculated so that none of the baseboards squeak. And then when I reach the downstairs bathroom, I know the exact amount of pressure to apply to the light switch so that it doesn't click too loud. Eventually, I make my way to the kitchen and delicately grab my coffee cup so that it doesn't clank with any of the other mugs. And I could go on and on. It's, it's, it's weird. All the intricacies of this path I so meticulously, faithfully follow in order to get quality time alone. However, the ease and expert level skill with which I move through my house, my darkened house, is often in stark contrast to following Jesus. I believe the way of Christ is true, and I believe that it is good and it is beautiful, but it is often hard to stay on that way. It is often difficult to navigate that path. That path that's in a broken world, and yet we are called to stay on it. There's temptation to sin. There's confusions about decisions. There's pain and suffering. When it comes to following my early morning path of darkness and silence, I'm good. I could do it in my sleep. Most of the time, I am half asleep. But following Christ, it's a narrow path, and there are any number of obstacles. Gratefully, however, when we read the Gospels, we find out that we are not alone in our struggle. 
Even Jesus' closest disciples, the OG disciples, the original 12, they struggled mightily. And it was often three steps forward, two steps back. Even in our passage today, we're going to see some of Peter's ignorance. In our passage next week, we're going to see Peter's arrogance, which Jesus rebukes. So gratefully, we are not alone in the fight to follow Jesus. But even more gratefully, Jesus provides instruction, assurance, and encouragement to help us follow him. Jesus, as it were, takes us by the hand. He acts as our guide. He leads the way. He shepherds us along. And one of the ways he guides us is through his teaching in John chapters 13 through 16. These four chapters are often referred to as the farewell discourse because Jesus is at the end of his ministry. He's at the end of his time with his disciples. He's preparing to die and then rise and then ascend to heaven with his Father. So he is leaving very quickly. His physical presence on earth will be no longer. And so he's offering this final word, this farewell discourse, final instructions with his disciples, paving the way for them to follow him. Even though there will be difficulties, even though there will be hardships and obstacles, and even though Jesus himself is leaving, before he leaves, he paves the way. And he calls us forward. He guides us forward in following him. And as we walk through these first 20 verses of his farewell discourse, we see three ways that Jesus paved the way. Three ways that he leads us forward in following him. So first, we find out that he paved the way as a servant. Our leader in the way is a servant leader. Two things that too often don't go together. He paved the way as a servant. So looking again at verse 1, this verse really sets the context for all of the farewell discourse, and it's a really powerful verse. John writes, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world, to depart to his Father, having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. So the first thing we find out in this scene, Jesus' final time with all 12 disciples, it's taking place during the Passover holiday. This is when Jews celebrate God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt by death of the Passover lamb. You remember from the book of Exodus, or maybe you remember from the Disney movie, The Prince of Egypt, either way. It's Exodus chapter 12. It was then that each Jewish family sacrificed a Passover lamb, so that the angel of death would pass over their home and instead strike their Egyptian enemies, thus allowing them to go free in the Exodus. Well, then God set up a meal of commemoration, the Feast of the Passover, as it's called here. And Jesus and his disciples are preparing that meal. They were all faithful Jews, and so they would have celebrated this custom together. The other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they also record this very same scene. Each of the other three gospels records the final Passover supper. And each of those three accounts, Jesus reinterprets the Passover meal as having to do with himself. 
He says, this bread is my body broken for you. This cup is my blood poured out for you. In other words, he says, I'm the true Passover lamb that Moses was looking forward to. And we as New Covenant believers, we celebrate that Passover meal every first Sunday of the month. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper. We did it just last week. Each of the other three Gospels records that first, last supper during Passover. But John does something different here. John does something different than the other three Gospels. He records something else that happened during that holiday dinner. But first notice what else he says in verse 1. He says, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to depart to the Father. So Jesus, within the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel, Jesus had said, My hour has not come. He says a couple of times, My hour is not here yet. There's still light left in the day. But now here, in John chapter 13, verse 1, he says, Now my hour has come. The sun has set on his ministry, and the dark hour of his crucifixion is immediately upon him. But we already see here that Jesus is not ultimately going to the cross. He's not ultimately going to the grave. He says he's going to his Father. He says he's returning to glory as God's triumphant Son. Furthermore, he's going to finish the same way he started, with love. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And we're going to see how he loves them through both his words and his actions. Verses 2 through 5 continue the narrative. John writes, During supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. So this satanic plot is underway. Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and condemnation are right around the corner. Again, his hour has come. But here's what Jesus does in the face of such hostility. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and knowing that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. Jesus laid aside his outer garments. Taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe their feet with the towel that was wrapped around his waist. So do you feel the contrast between verses 3 and 4 and verse 5? Verses 3 and 4, Jesus knows that the Father has put all things into his hands. Jesus knows that the Father has given all authority into his hands. That's verses 3 and 4. But verse 5, Jesus takes into his hands the dirty, gnarly feet of his disciples. Verses 3 and 4, Jesus knows that he's going back to heaven. He knows that he's going back to his heavenly Father. But verse 5, he goes to his knees first to wash their feet. So the one with all authority acts in humility. The one with full access to the glories of heaven serves on earth. Jesus will soon wear the eternal golden crown of life. But here it says he wears a simple servant's towel. 
around his waist. And in doing so, he paves the way for us to follow him. He paves the way as a servant. My final class for my university degree was an internship. And I studied healthcare administration, so I landed an internship at a nursing home retirement community. And I was going to report to and work with the executive director of the whole facility. That was the plan. But the first day, the executive director of the whole facility let me know that within at least my first stretch of time, I would not, in fact, be working with him. I was going to spend my first few weeks rotating through each one of the different departments and assisting the directors however they wanted me to, which included housekeeping, dining, nursing, and maintenance. And I was to work with those different teams and do whatever they told me to do. Well, each week when I rotated to a different team, these different blue-collared workers would look at me like, what are you doing here? You college-graduating, polo-shirt-wearing, administrative type, you're supposed to be in the business office, not down here with us. Taking out diapers, cleaning dirty dishes, sitting with sick residents, fixing a broken toilet. You're not supposed to be doing all this stuff. Now me, I was just doing what I was told to do, and I was trying to get a job because it was 2008. You guys remember what happened. But regardless of my motivations, those different teams and those different workers felt served. They felt seen. They felt like even though this young, educated punk, probably also a knowing, know-it-all type, he's working with us. He cares about us. And I earned their respect and friendship the rest of the time I worked there because they were shocked by being served. Well, that sort of shock is what John wants to invoke in us in the retelling of this story. Lowly as we are, broken as we are, even sinful as we are at times, Jesus, the Lord of glory, the Son of God, the great I Am, He kneels before us. He gently touches us, washing our feet. This part of us that's closest to the earth, this part of our body that, let's be honest, looks weird. Feet are awkward. They are worn down. And it's this part of our body that quite often stinks. Trying to teach my kids this. Like, you know, foot odor is a thing. You got to wear socks. You can't skip your feet in the shower. You got to get in between the toes. But Jesus isn't scared. Jesus is not ashamed of this otherwise gnarly part of us. Jesus is not ashamed of this part of our body that sometimes we are ashamed of. And what he's trying to communicate to us is, I am not ashamed of some of the things that have happened in your past that you are ashamed of. I welcome you. I'm with you. I serve you. 
No matter how grisly your sin may be, no matter how filthy your soul may be, and even though I'm the Lord of glory, I will get on my knees for you. He goes for it. He kneels before us. He touches us. He serves us in the most gracious and humble way. Do you know this about Jesus? Can you receive this about Jesus? He is a servant. He is your servant. He serves you in an intimate and humble way. He is not ashamed of the things you are ashamed of. He welcomes you no matter where you are. And when you receive the servant love of Jesus like that, it can fill you with joy and it can keep you on the path following him. Over and over and over, receiving the servant love of Jesus can keep you on the path following him. Jesus paved the way for us to follow him by acting as our servant. And secondly, he paved the way for us to follow him by his cleansing. He paved the way through his cleansing. So Jesus is making his way around the room. He's washing the disciples' feet and he comes to Peter. Peter is his chief disciple. He's the executive director disciple. The disciple that Jesus was closest with throughout his ministry. And he's the disciple, as we'll see, who struggles just as much as anybody to follow Jesus. So Peter is especially encouraging. That guy stank at following Jesus. Jesus comes to Peter and Peter asks him, Lord, do you wash my feet? So understandably, Peter is shocked. He says, Lord, would you really do this? Really? You're the Lord, not some common servant. Jesus responds in verse 7. He says, what I am doing, Peter, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. In other words, he says, Peter, receive this in faith. Receive what I'm doing for you in faith. And what you don't understand will become clear in time. But Peter can't take this. He says, you shall never wash my feet. The idea being that, Jesus, you're above this. And this is below you to do something like this. So I'm not going to let you. You'll never wash my feet. Jesus then responds and he says, well, if you won't let me wash you, then you have no share with me. In other words... If you refuse the offer of cleansing that Jesus holds out to you, then you refuse Jesus himself. So this raises the stakes, right? There's something deeper and more significant going on here than simply getting some dirt off of your feet. There's a deeper significance to this foot washing than just getting the grime off of your toes. Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. So what is this deeper significance? What is really going on with this act of foot washing? Well, it's quite clear. Jesus' humble serving of washing feet points toward the even more humiliating act of bearing a cross. Washing the stink off their feet is symbolic of how he'll wash the stink of sin off of our souls. 
Listen to how the Apostle John puts it later in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. He says, If we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Jesus' blood cleanses us. This is why he says to Peter, if I don't wash you, then you'll have no share with me because you'd still be in your sins if I don't wash you. You wouldn't have benefited from the cleansing power of my blood. Well, so then Peter backtracks and he overcorrects. He says, heck, if this washing is that big of a deal, if this washing is what really gets me a share with you, then wash my head too. Wash my hands, not just my feet. But... Peter, ever in error, and our hero, Jesus corrects him once again. He says, essentially in verse 10, what I have offered you is all you need. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, and each of you are clean. So all that you need is all that I offer. So what seems to be happening is that Peter is struggling with one problem and then struggling with the very opposite problem in the same conversation. At first, he thinks, don't wash me. Then he thinks, wash all of me. And Jesus responds to him by saying, yes, you need my foot washing, but all you need is my foot washing. You don't need more than that. And this is a two-sided problem. It's something we still see today when we share the gospel with people. Oftentimes, more progressive-minded liberal people think, I don't need spiritual cleansing. I don't need Jesus to die for my sins. That sounds barbaric. That sounds uncivilized. Well, then oftentimes, more traditional-minded, conservative people think, oh, I need spiritual cleansing, but it's got to be more than the cross. I've got to do good works. I've got to fulfill the religious laws. I've got to tithe my money. But Jesus here confronts both mindsets in Peter. He says, yes, you need my cleansing, but all you need is my cleansing. Yes, you need me to die for you, but all you need is for me to die for you and nothing more. There's no earning God's favor through religious devotion or moral do-gooding. So to my liberal progressive friends, you need the grace of the cross. You need the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. You are not above it. Humble yourself. Listen to your conscience. We all, have li- we all have sin in our lives that we will answer for. There is right and wrong, and we have done wrong. Receive the cleansing that Jesus offers. And to my conservative, more traditionally-minded friends, which, let's be honest, that's a high percentage of us in Lapeer County, you need the grace of the cross, and all you need is the grace of the cross. Nothing less, nothing more. You don't have to prove yourself. There is no earning God's favor. There is only receiving grace. This is the way that Jesus has paved. 
He is for us a servant. He offers to us cleansing. And finally, he gave us an example. He paved the way by giving us an example. So looking at these next few verses, Jesus is going to explain that him washing the disciples' feet and him eventually dying on the cross are not only a way for them to be cleansed, it is also a way for them, for us, to imitate The way I've said it to you guys before is the cross not only shows us how to get saved, the cross shows us how to live. In this case, specifically, to live as servants of one another. So listen again to verses 12 through 15. John writes, When Jesus had washed their feet, when he had put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to the disciples, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right to call me teacher and Lord, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. So Jesus stresses here, even though I am your Lord, and even though you are my servants, even though I am your teacher and you are my students, I have served you. I am not above serving you. And if that's the case, you are not above serving each other. And he stresses that the way he serves with selfless humility, with sacrificial love, that's to be the way we are to serve one another. And I have to say, this is why abuses of power in the church are an absolute travesty. This is why abuses of power in the church are a total contradiction of the way of Christ. Us with authority in the church are not to take advantage of our people, just the opposite. We are to serve our people. If you sense that a pastor or church leader is out for themselves, if you sense that they are not servant-hearted, then your options are few. You can choose to stay around, confront it, try to work it out, or prayerfully, you can leave. Because Christian leadership is servant leadership. Pastoral leadership follows the way of Christ laid out here. Those are some thoughts about this in relation to church leadership, but what about church community? Are we a fellowship marked by service to one another? What kind of sensitivity do we have to one another's needs? Or are we so self-consumed that we miss how we could serve one another, how we could serve our church? Giving money is great. I, I see the number every week that we all give, and great. It's money. The least, the least of God's problems is money. (laughs) He owns a thousand on a cattle's hill. A thousand cattles on a hill is the ancient way to say it, which I didn't say real well. God is rich. God is filthy rich. It's servant-heartedness that should typify our church. That's what I pray for. That's what I long for. It should be what we are known for. 
how we sacrificially serve one another. And I have to emphasize the sacrificial part. Jesus here, washing their feet, sacrificed his dignity. It's what Peter's saying. What are you doing, Jesus? You're disrespecting yourself. You look like an idiot. You are not worthy of this. Peter's saying you're sacrificing your dignity. And similarly, Jesus dying on the cross. Sacrificed his life. So the kind of service he's calling us to is not easy. Like, for example, if my neighbor asked me to cut his grass, if he asked me to serve him by cutting his grass, I might be serving him. But I am not sacrificing for him. Because I would love to cut his grass. Because I love cutting grass. It's cathartic. I listen to music. I just zone out. It's awesome. So it would not be a sacrifice. In fact, sometimes when I'm cutting my grass, I look over at my neighbor's grass and I think, man, I just want to cut his grass. I really wonder <laughs> what he would do if I just started cutting it. So that would not be sacrificial service. That would be selfish service. By serving him, I'm really serving myself. But no, by using the foot washing and using the cross as models of Christian service, Jesus is calling us to sacrifice, to die to ourselves. In other words, Jesus is calling us to serve one another until it hurts. Jesus is calling us to serve one another to the point of getting annoyed with the person we're serving. He's calling us to serve one another to the point of being burdened by the person we're serving. That's sacrificial service. Now don't get me wrong. We are not meant to burn ourselves out. We are not meant to exasperate ourselves. We all need rest. We all need boundaries. None of us are Superman or Superwoman, but in Christ, we are servants. This is the way. This is the way Christ guides us forward. By serving us himself and calling us to serve one another. By cleansing us from sin and by freeing us from sin. And calling us to live for him and to live for one another. Following the way of Christ is not always easy. But when we receive his sacrificial love, our hearts are strengthened, we receive the cleansing power of his blood, and our shame washes away. And when we follow his example of sacrificial service, our lives imitate our Lord and teacher. I pray it would be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.